0: Hello, and welcome to the i3 Insights Podcast. My name is Wouter Klein, and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. As you probably know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. The following recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to another edition of the i3 Investor Podcast. This is Daniel Grioli, otherwise known as the Market Fox columnist for i3. And with me today is Denise Seldon, and Denise is a portfolio manager with uh, Copper Rock Capital, a growth equity manager based in Boston in the United States. And Denise has recently announced her retirement 12 months from now. So we're talking a little bit about growth equities, uh, about Denise's career, and what's happened over that time. It's a very interesting conversation. And with that, we'd like to introduce Denise. Oh,
0: thank you, Daniel, uh, and thank you for the opportunity to chat um, both about my career and more importantly about growth equities, which is uh, what I'm really looking forward to talking about. But just to put some context on it, um, I'll briefly, well, it's hard to briefly run through a career that is uh, close to 60 years in the investments business, and I'll tell you how it uh, got to be so long. That's that beginning portion is a bit of an interesting story. Um, I had an uncle who owned a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. And in those days, in those uh, post-war days, the owners of seats uh, were used both to execute orders for clients, but also to produce liquidity on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, much like the concept of Lloyd's Syndicate that you both do pricing but also be a capital reserve uh, for putting up the money. And my uncle had had uh, an interesting progression from being a bookkeeper uh, to accountant to broker to then owner of seat and trader for his own account. And the most efficient way to do that was through this role as a floor broker. Now, this uncle had, you know, been around always at uh, family uh, Thanksgiving and other family festivities, but he was always the quiet person who sat in the corner of the room, and I'm not sure anyone really understood much of what he did. And totally out of the blue, one year, literally uh, after Thanksgiving dinner, um, he came to me and asked if I would like to work for him for the following summer. Uh, That was Thanksgiving which is of course in the fall I was 13 and so that next summer I was going to be 14 and he announced that um, he thought it would be a time for me to start working and again based on his history of starting as a bookkeeper at a very young at a very young age and have totally self-developed his career this was logical I think everyone else was a little surprised but I was really intrigued by it and said I thought that would be wonderful. It involved, um, of course, living in Manhattan uh, uh, for the summer um, with my uncle and and my aunt, uh, taking the subway downtown every morning into Wall Street, into the very heart of Wall Street, at his office at 120 Broadway. And the jobs that he gave me to do were actually quite immersive it's really pretty amazing in this day and age when at least here in the states um, kids are maintained as kids for (laughs) a lot longer summers are spent with all kinds of lessons or deliberately having uh, alternating downtime at the beach the idea that the best thing for a fourteen-year-old girl would be to work on Wall Street for the summer wouldn't be as common uh, an association these days so we had two desks in an area, or I should back up and, and say the rules had changed uh, uh, from the time that cap providing capital was the primary role, role for floor brokers, and the New York Stock Exchange regulations had broken up these two functions so that you could no longer originate orders on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange because they felt there was too much risk of inside trading. So the floor brokers had a choice. They could either do execution only for outside orders, or they could continue to trade their own accounts with all the preferential rates of owning a seat. But it had to be done as an upstairs owner. And so my uncle became an upstairs owner, meaning he just sat at a, at a desk, faced the New York Stock Exchange and American Stock Exchange tapes, ticker tapes, going across the top And he would write orders trading for his own account. So the day that I arrived, uh, we were set up in um, two desks, one behind the other, sort of like a toboggan setup. And he had arranged for me to be the order clerk. He would sit watching the tape conceive orders, quickly write them down on a piece of paper, slap that piece of paper behind him onto my desk. I had a stopwatch. Uh, around my neck, I would grab the piece of paper, run to the trading desk, hit the stopwatch, and if they didn't give me a size and market from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in 90 seconds, we didn't pay for the trade. So, in many ways, it was a wonderful role. I was right in the heart of the action immediately, uh, but I really wasn't doing any thinking. I was purely an operator in this process, but. I think about those first days a lot because I'm sure it's what got me hooked. That I wasn't told to read something, I wasn't told to just sit and watch. I had an action role. It was something else that really impressed me that first, very first day. Um, when it was time for lunch, my uncle, who's a man of few words, um, as I said, we were all quite surprised when. Out of the blue, he had even suggested this uh, summer job. But he turned around to me and said, now it's time for lunch. I said, hey, fine. First words he'd spoken to me since he gave me the stopwatch and explained the system. And we went um, through a back alley and went to the lunchroom at the New York Stock Exchange, where he was quietly taken aside I saw the maitre d' whisper something, and he came back and very matter-of-factly uh, informed me uh, that we wouldn't be eating there because women were not allowed in the stock, on the floor of the stock exchange or in the dining room. And I too took it as a very matter-of-fact. Again, this was 1961, so it was just a fact of life, and I stood silent and uh, he went, we went down another set of alleys, uh, we bought a set of sandwiches, and went back to our desks. That night, the next set of words he said to me was all right, You know, same, same plan, we meet at the same time, we'll come on the subway. He said, but um, I've arranged a different plan for lunch. I said, fine. And the next day, we went to lunch uh, in the dining room of the American Stock Exchange, where he had, in the interim, uh, arranged uh, to commit to also having a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. These were not on on the American Stock Exchange. He could also use it, you know, for his own trading purposes. And seats in those days weren't terribly, terribly expensive. But it was a very interesting set of immediate lessons in culture uh, one part I'd say uh, around the being able to eat some places, not able to eat others, very matter-of-factly communicating it to me. That's part of the Wall Street mantra of "it is what it is," and you can't change the whole system immediately. And so you work, you find workarounds, and that was the routine for the rest of the summer. We would eat. Quickly, silently at the American Stock Exchange lunchroom and then come back and go back to trading. So that was my initiation. Uh, As I said, that was 1961. Those were good investment years. They weren't quite yet the go-go years. We were building to that. But my uncle's primary style of trading was that he was a short trader. Because again, remembering that capital provision function on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, that's what you needed from your floor traders. You needed capital to buy positions when there were sellers, but you also needed capital willing to short positions when there were buyers. So he was equally comfortable on both sides of the trade. And it's fascinating to me today to think back on a number of the names that I traded short in those days, like Xerox, that <laughs> subsequently collapsed and came back from the ashes. Boeing, Lockheed, or Lockheed Martin, uh, Chrysler, all actual or near bankruptcies that were restructured and rose from the ashes to still be an important part of the industrial complex in the, in the U.S. And then a lot of really early tech um, stocks, uh, like a, a Memorex, uh, the largest vendor of, of, of course, magnetic tape, totally al- already eclipsed and gone, a name almost no one remembers. So those were wonderful times. I worked for him uh, for three summers, um, Went, continued to work from, for him then both vacations from college, uh, summers during college, took a year off from college to work full-time, uh, moved from working for my uncle to working for his firm, uh, Joseph Hall & Company, which was a major. They owned uh, 26 seats on the New York Stock, Stock Exchange. They were a major execution house. So I had a great early foundation that I had already worked seven years in the business before I could even get registered when I turned 21. So you were a veteran before you <laughs> gra-
1: graduated from college.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, yes, that's true. But through the quirk of this family relationship and starting it out on the trading side, I was a veteran of the internal mechanics both trading, lots of interface with the back office. When I went to work for the firm itself, which was in order to work in Boston rather than New York, went to college in, in Boston and worked, wanted to work for you know, this local firm, um, my next step wasn't into stock selection, or research, or even customer contact. It was all back office. I became the margin clerk. And the margin clerk in those days was still incredibly manual. The, the office looked Dickensian. You sat on high stools, and there were racks of metal trays that would pull out uh, one by one, each tray being a major trader, and it had little flip-up forms that you'd turn over, and pen, pencil and calculator. Uh, would do the individual allocations of what, you know, how much margin the firm was willing to extend for each stock position. Incredibly manual. We're talking about the early 70s still. By now we had gotten into the go-go years and there was another wonderful, I don't know, circumstance for me, which is that same firm, my uncle's firm, uh, was down in the financial district in Boston and the closest large or the closest firm of any kind to us was right across the fire escape across a back alley into the trading room at Fidelity. So that we had a second floor office all set up in the way you always see them in the movies, the the tape you know running across the news tape in the back, traders lining the, the back of the of the room and the major portfolio managers from Fidelity would come across the fire escape with a bag lunch and sit in our boardroom and watch the tape. So I had that next phase of trading, and training was, I think, the best possible. It was deeply immersed already in an institutional environment. And then I'll say, if it doesn't sound too cinematic, one extraordinary final event, which was once I turned 21, I immediately um, took the exams uh, to get registered as a broker, but in those days only registered representatives who had dealings with the public, which at that time of course was defined as what we think of more as retail, had to be registered. If you were a trader or broker dealing only with institutions, then you were an employee of the firm. And the registration restrictions didn't apply to you. But I wanted to get registered. I wanted to legitimize what had already been the seven years of uh, working in in the industry. And the head of the trading, the local Boston trading desk, which was really more of an order relay, it wasn't a capital committing function, Had a heart attack in the middle of the day. And the registration restrictions had just been extended to internal employees taking orders. And I was the only person who didn't have a retail book of business, uh, who was there, you know, in the two floors of the firm, uh, who was legally fully registered, and it was, as I say, it was so cinematic, I almost hate to tell the story because it feels so Hollywood, but someone came upstairs, I'm busy calculating uh, uh, margin requirements, and said, um, you know, Billy's gone to the hospital, we need someone to run the desk, and I walked down the stairs, went, sat on the desk, and that was a major turning point for me, of course, because it was the beginning of a truly institutional, large-scale oriented world of trading and investing.
1: And that's, a, that's a great story and mm-hmm. we're, I'm just thinking back to your earlier story about the lunchroom and not being <laughs> welcome. Was, was, it, was it strange when you sat down and you're now the boss of the desk? Yes. Well,
0: I'm the boss <laughs> of the desk. There were five employees. They were all men uh, forty and above who had mm, no, the lot, they've had a lot of experience as clerks on order desks, but really had had no education in investments. Um, orders in, in those days, and again, we just forget how much technology has changed things. You know, Meg, Megamux, uh, T1 communication, satellites have totally changed this. In those days, brokerage houses all communicated between their desks and to the floor of the exchanges by teletype. This was technology from the railroads spreading across America 100 years earlier. And so the personnel on these desks tended to be old railroad um, telegraphers. And we had two brothers who had retired. And in those days, of course, you had very early retirements from the railroads. They mimicked the military structures. And one brother was on the end of the uh, the key, the telegraph key, in New York, the other in Boston. And when there were slow times during the day, they would tell dirty jokes on the key, and you could tell them, you know, sniggering and blushing. and And it was a minor entertainment for everyone to, you know, to watch the brothers chat with each other all day. But the specific question about lunch and women is actually even more interesting when you get to Boston. Boston had a very legalized and public system of discrimination against women Uh, in lunchrooms. It was, I'm sure, some old set of what we call blue laws, puritanical laws, uh, perhaps to keep Keep, keep the professional, professional <laughs> or to keep other types of women professionals out of yeah. bars. So there were three licenses uh, that a bar could have in in Boston. Mm-hmm. There was um, a a tavern license, there was a bar license, and a lounge license. And in a tavern license. Uh, women were not allowed at the bar. There was literally not only a rail that you'd stand next to, but there was a bar that was about waist height that defined the area that was considered the bar, and women could not go past that area. But also to have a tavern license, which was considered fairly desirable, because you could served men very quickly, particularly down in the financial district, which is adjacent to the wharf district down here, you had to serve food. So when you think of it, it's really ironic. The favored places for quick and actually pretty good food were the taverns, where people who worked in the industry would also drink, but those are the places that women literally legally couldn't go. In a bar. Um, women uh, could be served alcohol. You you were allowed to serve or not serve food, but everyone had to be seated. So again, think through it. You're a clerk. You want a quick a quick lunch. A beer. Where do you want to go? You want to go stand at the bar and so. Again, the, the nomenclature is confusing, but that's why taverns were so popular, bars were kind of after workplaces, and a lounge was a place where if they paid the price for that money, um, again women could not stand at at the bar, but women could sit at tables and be served alcohol and food. So it was an incredibly it, it was all built into the public system and it was in this time, by then, early 70s, uh, there was a revolt, a sit-in. Everyone was much more focused on, of course, desegregation in the South and far more important things. But the women of the Boston financial community actually had a, a sit-in at one of the really? major taverns. It's called Pete's. It still exists downtown, and there's a little bronze plaque that's been relegated into a dark corner, but you can see the whole history. Of the integration of, uh, you know, of the, the the tavern, taverns, bars, and lounges, and the city council finally changed all of this legislation. But when you think of it, it really isn't that long ago. So, what year would the city have been, and how long did it last before
1: they they got they got the city council to change the rules? It was the early
0: 70s, okay. and. I don't think it went on very long because I think the restaurant owners were actually thrilled to have a new set of customers. I'm sure they would have been, yeah. And the least bit of pressure and no resistance from the owners and everyone threw up their hands and said, well, this is ridiculous and it changed. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is interesting that it had to come as grassroots change as opposed to restaurant owners you know, you think under the capitalist in the capitalist way mm-hmm. they would have said, Well, we've noticed all these other people around downtown and let's change things. It didn't happen that way. Okay. And uh, were there a few disgruntled <laughs> men I around ha- that um, unhappy that things were changing? changing. I I actually don't I don't remember that. Um, I think it was everyone kind of shrugged and there was a little bit of sheepish, well, you know, that's Boston and we still have a in those, in those times, there were a lot of other blue laws as well. Um, no liquor sales on Sundays, no liquor sales in supermarkets. We had lots and lots of liquor-specific laws, particularly in Massachusetts, uh, among all of the states of, of the US. So I think everyone didn't view it quite as sociologically or just kind of viewed, oh, it's a little bit of history. but. I, I remember that as some important changes. So I know there's going to be a mm-hmm. big dose of hindsight
1: in this question, but when you're meeting people like Peter Lynch at those very early days, before mm-hmm. they are Peter Lynch, mm-hmm. did you get a sense that, that, that it was he was Peter going Lynch. to be something special? Or was he just, just, another, just another PM?
0: No. I, I will say, and it is with a lot of hindsight, I guess, but... He was special, uh, and for some really interesting reasons. Please um, tell And there were many portfolio managers who were in those days as well known as as Peter. And I, I'd say I might have thought the same would come, you know, the same uh, legendary status might might come to some of them. But with Peter, and and I continued to have Peter. Lynch Contact for a long time, and I remember this actually more from later from my Lehman days when I would be bringing companies in to to visit with Peter. I learned an immense amount from him about talking to company managements because as you see in his books, uh, this true trust in the intuitive and common sense and put yourself in the shoes of the other person type thinking Peter would exude that as opposed to young analysts then and today who are being pushed to find an individual insight or a detail that everyone else got wrong. Peter was very happy to think through the big picture and think where is the mainstream flow. And there were two areas of stocks that Peter was particularly interested in early days and continued on through. One, of course, were small-scale financials. Um, much of his long record was made, in fact, from his extraordinary bet on uh, the S&L industry as it was essentially brought into the public and publicly traded era from being, you know. In the US, we have this long history of Jacksonian uh, democracy and banking, so we pretty much give a banking license to any group of people that puts up some capital. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of countries, that's not trusted, because Mm -hmm. the thought is that the bankers will, you know, rip you off. Here, the thought has always been, if you have enough bankers, they're all ripping one another off, so who cares? We can neutralize it by having 15,000 banks. So when the SNL industry um, began to change their charters and become more public institutions. That was an area of specialty for Peter. The other area less remembered, I I think, was he was very interested in basic materials. And of course, you know, post-war industrialized America, all this capacity that had been miraculously turned on uh, for the war effort and then continued through two more war uh, efforts, Korea and, and, and Vietnam, we still had a lot of manufacturing capacity, steel, railroads, all of these cyclicals were very important to him. And whenever I would see him with a management that came from more of that cyclical side, he would always ask a question that I, I Just fascinates me to this day, and I I try to imitate it. He'd say, Oh boy, you've done, you've really done an amazing job with all of these ups and downs and handling such, but do you ever think about, you know, how much money could you make if everything went right? And what he would be trying to do, and I remember this particularly with um, Commercial Metals, which was one of the early um, steel companies that used scrap input rather than than slag. And of course the management would just, you know, their eyes would glisten. This is amazing. That someone, a big investor, is asking me not what can go wrong, but what can go right. Mm-hmm. And they'd say, well, you know, we have X tons of capacity and even if we assumed a, you know a 3% price increase, there's always a nine month lag, you know, and they would Reveal that actually they'd been thinking, of course, because everyone everyone sits down every now and then and figures out what's my net worth, figures out what could think, how could it go if it all goes right, and they would reveal that capacity upside, which of course isn't what one invests on alone, but hearing how a management thinks about their true capacity and about the leverage in their business is. Very very valuable, and that's something I remember about Peter, particularly from the, from the base metals and materials side. On the financial services side, he was always much more interested in the people than than the balance sheet. He had a a, a fabulous research assistant who, whom there's been none better. Uh, you know, he continues on in 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 the industry. Peter certainly was aware of the balance sheet, but he was interested in the managements of these things because these were, let's say, small clusters of small town people who were suddenly making it into the big time. And the privatization process allowed those original owners and often the employers to get stock, and there was a perverse incentive. They actually wanted the stock to go public at a low price rather than a high price. Mm-hmm. Because they were going that that was going to be their income, their input price, where their options were were struck. And so it was more, you know, how long have you worked for the bank? Were there were you a lending officer? What do you think are the most attractive industries in your area? You wanted to feel for the aggression and risk-seeking level of the people. It's very, very interesting, you,
1: making me remember a couple of stories, one of which was a similar similar comment that I I heard Bill Gross give in an interview, that early in his career he was um, much more interested in the assets backing. um, Backing various fixed income instruments, but he learned the hard way uh, because he, he went on one research trip where he went to a particular industrial company and decided that that was a better bond than Walmart. <laughs> and he realized afterwards had he paid more attention to the people, <laughs> he would have he would have picked the better the better security because the industrial company, even though it had a lot of asset backing, went bankrupt. <laughs>
0: Oh, interesting. So, yeah, interesting, interesting stories
1: interesting to hear that perspective on, on Peter Lynch and uh, I'm just curious because you mentioned also a name, Jerry Tsai which maybe mm-hmm. a lot of listeners in Australia don't know mm-hmm. who he was he was um, one of the most famous momentum managers I guess, really? he'd buy and sell stocks in the same day and he, uh, he took that track record to set up his own fund, the Manhattan Fund and right. he sold that on Pretty much at the peak, didn't he?
0: Yes. Um,
1: I, I just think back, and again, there's probably a bit of hindsight in this, but were people concerned about a fund manager, you know, buying and selling stocks, essentially day trading? You know, if, if you were to pitch that to somebody today, I'm I'm a, I'm a day trading mutual fund manager. Um, I think you'd struggle to raise assets. But was how how was yeah. the world
0: different? Um. It was quite different because mutual funds were being pitched and bought as uh, you don't have the time or knowledge uh, to choose stocks and do portfolio construction, so let the experts do it for you. And if you believed that pitch and bought mutual funds for that reason, then you might be even more inclined to you don't have the knowledge or the time to be a successful day trader so hire a successful professional to do it for you it was a not bad pitch and especially in in an era of course of ever rapid ever more rapid turnover uh, on the stock exchanges uh, and more volatility it was g how do I get a piece of this? I'm I don't have time or skills to do it myself, but it's really exciting. I can do it through a jury side. Mm-hmm. And aren't I lucky? Mm-hmm. And remember also, the price to pay in those days was unbelievable. You had upfront load charges at its worst, at its most abusive, as high as eight and a half percent. Really? Yes, the SEC stepped in. And there were two major, I'd say, columns of abuses. One were the upfront charges. There were no trails in those days, but um, we partly got trails as the way of squeezing down upfront charges. Um, that was one whole set of abuses, though, of locking people in by having, by their being forced to pay very large upfront fees. But the other was the commission schedule was absolutely set and there were no volume discounts. So, you know, if the charge was $30 to um, you know, to trade a hundred shares of U.S. Steel, then it was uh, $300 to to trade a thousand shares and so on up. So the institutional brokerage business just soared. Until again, another infamous episode, but what's called May Day. Mm-hmm. And on May Day, that was when the SEC stepped in, forced the stock exchanges to produce volume discounts. And uh, there was an immediate implosion of about 80% in terms of the brokerage fees being paid by the institutions. Mm-hmm. So it was an abusive, it mm-hmm. certainly was and abusive and unregulated and in those areas not sufficiently regulated because this was all new. You see, it either been people trading for their own accounts previously or high net worth individuals who somewhat knew what they were doing, but also they were trading in lower volumes than institutions. Once mutual funds took off, the institutional world was formed and a new set of regulation came in, but in steps. So
1: at this stage, when, when May Day took place, were you still on the broking side, or had you moved to asset
0: management? I had, um, May Day was 1973, uh, and I had moved over uh, to work for the, what was then State Street Bank. Um, and again, we're back on the second floor at 19 Congress Street with the... Uh, the fire escape connected to Fidelity, and we had lots of people from this institutional world flowing through, you know, my little world as the as the head trader, and one of them uh, worked at State Street, and and said, you know, I you seem to know a lot for someone so young. We need someone like you. We're becoming more of a trading organization. Wouldn't you like to come? and learn institutional investing uh, from the side of representing large pools of money, which was a bit of a grandiose promise because State Street Bank in in those days did not have large pools of money, but they were aspiring to it and they were tiptoeing in to seeing this change that the combination of being a custodian bank, which they were because they were primarily a trustee bank, and they saw that taking their custodian base and using that as a way to expand in this new institutional world could help them. Mm-hmm. So by the time May Day struck, uh, I was very conscious of what was happening in the industry because I'd come from the trading side, but I was a fledgling new institutional analyst. I was assigned to cover uh, the utilities industry that was considered uh, you know, good good sound fundamental investing and I was in the research department at the State Street Bank mm-hmm. so
1: compared to when you started out obviously as you uh, a recurrent theme through mm-hmm. our conversation has mm-hmm. been the, the big changes in technology and how that's mm-hmm. driven uh, access to information and cost and all of these things so, If you had to contrast the way you did uh, equity research when you started out covering utilities to to compare it to how you do it now for example uh, what do you think have been some of the biggest changes that have been brought about by access to information technology and Mm. do you think that's impacted your ability to find opportunities in the market
0: Mm. great questions because you know at the time things are happening your base of comparison is tending to be what are my other choices right now? You don't tend to look on a hist- historic timeline because, you know, I'm not going to decide on my information choices based on what was available to me in 1959. This is 1974. It's the new modern world. So I'm going to just look across my horizontal current life. And I. Again, I was fortunate to be in the midst of crisis. Young person for my age, I'd had a lot of experience with markets already that I was very fortunate to have because of my family background. And in being given the utilities industry to look at, I was suddenly deeply immersed in, you know, Balance sheets and going to regulatory hearings, you know, walking up to Beacon Hill uh, to the Department of Public Utilities to hear Boston Edison testify. That was my new world, was doing like in, per- because you really didn't have a sell side brokerage function that was doing it for you. And a lot of it really was going around to companies, knocking on doors, writing up, writing up reports. So um,
1: it sounds almost like investigative journalism in a way.
0: In a way, you know, yeah. You
1: know, chasing leads and a lot of legwork.
0: Yeah, and also dealing with an extraordinary breadth of uh, the other thing because this was State Street Bank and it had been a it was an old line custody bank with a lot of family accounts that had you know been there for a um, hundred years. We. Every analyst in the department also had to cover a number of private companies, and I remember being as much fascinated by these as anything else I had dealt with. You know that here I'd gone from, you know, short selling Memorex, uh, you, you know, for my uncle as his as, as his clerk, and now I'm, you know, it's ten years later, and I'm driving, I'm driving the car two hours to a. A little factory in Massachusetts that made boot tacks, and I remember having read the filings. You know, day before, wasn't exactly sure. Literally looking at my own boots, and yeah, that they really are. It's boot tacks. It was, uh, and of course, what it turned out the key issue there was that the boot tack uh, factory still owned by. Uh, the White and family was located on two hundred acres that was now adjacent adjacent to the Mass Pike, and to an interchange, and so this was really a real estate valuation exercise. In addition, you know, to looking at the current market for boot tax, which certainly had been dwindling each year, but investigative journalism is, as, as you say, it it had all those aspects and was tremendously exciting because of it although you know I can truly say don't want to be melodramatic about it but Tim and I went out you know to Milford um, Tuesday afternoon we went and called on Waters Corp which is the world's uh, leading company in chromatography and mass spectrometry for uh, for the phar- the pharmaceuticals industry and has been a core Massachusetts based company you know for you know, 30 years with dominant market shares around the world, it was the same sense of excitement of, wow, you know, they've managed to keep it all together, reasonable balance sheet, growth in the high teens, self-financing. So technology did come into play, the growth of the sell side came into play more in those late 70s uh, years, again improvements in tele- telecommunications we all forget when did quotrons appear you know the, equi- the equivalent of a desktop but it wasn't connected to the internet again it was connected now by a, a telecom cable megamux connected to the floor of the new york stock exchange a separate big pipe that went into the American, and that's how you'd get quotes, that's how you'd know what was good. but you, it was all numbers, you weren't getting news tape, news came on a separate, that was Thomson, Thomson Reuters, that was a news service, that came out of the newspaper business, putting the two together into Bloomberg was actually still, you, you know, that's an 80s phenomenon, so the evolution of where we got our information, and how clever and how energetic were you about patching all this information together? That had still that still had value and value to the firm. When I started at State Street, State Street had also just started uh, the first global fund, but it was all ADRs, so it was global only in the sense that it was large companies, mostly. UK, Swiss, Nestle, of course, uh, that registered into the US information system by having ADRs um, to trade. And I remember being also totally thrilled with that assignment because having first trained on, you know, public utilities, it, I survived the first Arab oil embargo, and you know, you think you own something that's an 8% dividend payer, high interest rate period, uh, forever, and all of a sudden con ed is totally flattened. Um, but having trained in a quite domestic and local business and suddenly being told you're assigned to the global fund, and that opened up the whole world of doing business outside the US. And that set of information sources uh, was, again, not at all established. And that was uh, reading what companies would tell you. That was the, your primary source was through L'Oreal and, and Nestle, British Petroleum. Mm-hmm. So, so now that we, we
1: do have all of this information, and it's, it's only a click away, Mm-hmm. Where do you think analysts and portfolio managers can find their edge? Uh,
0: well, I've been increasingly concerned about not not saying it shouldn't it shouldn't exist, but but thinking about how to coexist and prosper side by side with quantitative trading, because quantitative trading has rules that are quite different from fundamental trading. Let's take a really simplistic example, but if the rule is sell anything that's gone up 19%, absolutely regardless of its cash flows or or why, or maybe the rule is sell by half, sell 50% of anything that's gone up 10% and 100%. So you get a lot of. Activity in the market where you have to double down and have even greater conviction um, In a long-term scenario, and yet how do you keep yourself from being shaken out? And I I have just been thinking about that and Endlessly because especially in the world of small caps we're getting you know overall market VIX is down in the last, you know, several years, but individual stock uh, volatility, as defined by standard deviation, in small cap world is up dramatically. So, how to not get shaken out, and it's I think not more. It's not. It's not more information out of the financial statements. It's more because price feeds and financial statements are the two pieces of information that are ubiquitous, that are just totally available to everyone. What are the things that are not available? It's a knowledge and confidence, again, in individuals and managements. Um, Back to your your comments about some of the differences between the... um, you know, the in, the industrial bond or, or Walmart. Um, I, I often would do you know, business school recruiting uh, for us um, when I was at Lehman, and people would be struggling between did they want to go into fixed income or did they want to go to equities. And I would try to point out that in the fixed income world, you're looking at a series of cash flows and your conviction has to focus on will the expected cash flow be realized or not because it could be a terrible company it could be an industrial that's very cyclical but you could still absolutely make the expected cash flows and make the expected return on the investment for an equity you're looking at a future series, not of cash flows, but a future series of management decisions. It's absolutely open-ended. Totally open-ended. I mean, there's not even a, really a sign the sell side and company guidance, they make artificial midpoints to this. But conceptually, it's a series of management decisions. And you could argue, well, there will be macro, yes, there will be macro pressures on it. But really, you're buying management in one case and you're buying expected cash flows in another. So I've I've tried to focus more on feeling that I really know what management wants. Do they want steady evergreen growth? Do they want to plant a flag and control the future 15 years from now by Planting the flag and owning the inputs to the resources today. Think of an Albemarle around the lithium, or a, as an example of that. It's not a bad strategy. It's just a different strategy. So that's been one, one whole area that I think about and find very difficult. The other is, uh, to try and find, competitive dynamics and to make a first cut uh, around. Is this an attractive area I mean is it is there underlying unit growth is there enough demand growth that pricing is relatively protected and from there use a litmus test that is not meeting prior estimates or forecasts but has much do more to do with competitive dynamics um, did did my people gain share or not mm-hmm. That's, that's very interesting. I was
1: very interested to hear you say that you look at company management as a, a flow of decisions because mm-hmm. it's, it's actually quite similar to how I look at fund managers. So we have uh, most people in the industry rely on various quantitative tools to break down the risk factor exposures or the attribution. Um, I always took the approach of looking at a portfolio as a portfolio of decisions, Yes. it's a, it's a, a group of buy, sell, hold, position, position sizing decisions and the reason I did that was, um, maybe it's my background in psychology, but behaviours tend to persist, we are creatures of habit, so I always felt you got more... Um, reliable insight into what might happen in the future if you look Mm -hmm. at things that persist like behaviors. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see that you have a similar approach to understanding companies.
0: I think so. One of the things I've learned and maybe more in later years than earlier years is even if I'm rushing into a company meeting and maybe I have been remiss in looking at the balance sheet, but I'll always pound Bloomberg for that extra 60 seconds before I go into the meeting and look at the top three officers and really focus on how long they've been at the firm, where they came from. And the most interesting situations are are often to focus on a recent change where you see a situation you're suddenly looking at it and say wow you know all three of those top officers were put in place four years ago at the same time hmm must have been a board revolt of some kind and then the first things I always want to ask them in the meeting is you know I'm sorry I haven't met you before but I see you know that you all started together four years ago what what made that decision to part it's rather than letting them focus on current operations, where they're all rehearsed for that, but it's to get into the psychology of, what were you put in place to do? Are you still doing that? Do you feel happy? And presumably, your masters, the people who put you there with the board, are they still happy? And for example, Daniel, you and I went to, an interesting, but I didn't find particularly, in, investable um, you, you know, meeting with a small pharmaceutical company yesterday and almost I, I think you know de- delaying in a way that was very frustrating to them I really wanted to know about the backgrounds of each one of those people as to why had they come together to do this and it was fascinating to me that the lead guy who'd come out of Novartis I'm sure was a very a very fine and successful bench scientist had really changed his life to leave the big mothership go off try to found an independent higher growth small pharmaceutical company went down two different dead ends before he'd ended up with this product which seems to have legs but it actually has nothing to do with his scientific
1: He was a neuroscientist working
0: in dermatology. Exactly. And and as we later figured out in listening to each of them, the whole reason he'd ended up in dermatology was that another specialty company in dermatology had failed because it was sold off to an Indian generics company. The sociology was a no fit. That whole team wanted to jump ship and go to a more hospitable environment. This guy had the structure of a small phar- pharmaceuticals company. So he threw open the door and said, OK, guys, come in here. And they are now you know, raising more, more money by taking it into a market, new market, the, the US. So I found that history and sociology and motivation of why these people were sitting in front of us trying to raise $30 million for a newly approved product infinitely more interesting than the prospects for the product. Now, secondarily, I think the prospects for the product were terribly narrow and couldn't support the infrastructure that they're building. But that was almost the second round of analysis. Yeah, it's very interesting to hear you say that. And
1: You, you mentioned that you, you spent a lot of time with smaller companies, and Copper Rock Capital is a small and mid-cap mm-hmm. specialist. What would you say are the, the key differences between small and mid-sized companies and larger companies? and and do you think, um, I guess, how would you care them compare them in terms of investment prospects and and what you see? Do you think there's more opportunity mm-hmm. amongst the smaller, the larger,
0: the mid-size? Well, um, you know, it obviously it will change over. It will rotate and change over time at this point in time clearly some of the most exciting and open-ended growth characteristics are coming out of the very very large because they're you know creating massive new infrastructures i mean what is facebook about facebook is about a billboard, an open line that connects the world. Like everyone had a walkie-talkie in his or her house. You wake up in the morning, you come down, you have breakfast, you talk your walk you turn your walkie talkie on and you're plugged into the world. You can talk into it and broadcast to the world and you can hear information back from the world. You can slice and dice it. I mean that is not it that is an infrastructure base that tremendous that benefits itself by its scale. A, a competitor trying to set up a walkie-talkie that connects the world that's starting and just handling two cities is disadvantaged and has a So we have a lot going on with mega entities, mega infrastructure development in the world today that is a very investable theme. And, and again, Facebook is so easy to point to um, the cloud portions of Amazon more than even the shopping portions, Tencent, Alibaba, Universal Payment, I mean there's a lot going on in parts of large cap and yet there are some other large cap organizational, you know, organizations by sector that are suffering terribly from their near size and uh, point large pharma again because it's an area that uh, I know very well large energy, that's you know stuck with having to decide between what are viable long-term assets versus not viable long-term. You know, so some parts of large are tremendously exciting, and I hear a lot of small-cap managers who automatically turn their back and say, I oh, don't know because the you know the law of small numbers is so much better that you can always grow small better no not necessarily on the other hand the ability to financially exploit single innovation um, and again technology uh, around um, just new insights in chemistry new insights in um, molecular transfer on the semiconductor side those have been better Uh, incubated and come to us in the public markets on the small-cap side Mm -hmm. so I mean just think of the extraordinary size of Intel and Samsung and the cash flows that come from being in every device in some way in some part of memory but what was the last breakthrough technology that came out of even one of them? Mm -hmm. they've improved their own base technologies, but they haven't given us the new that has, you know, come from an arm or even from the crazy throw money at everything mentality of a soft bank that just uh, hoovers around the world looking for small new. So I'm afraid I'm going to punt on that answer and say there are some great large companies and there are great ways to make money in small. I wouldn't be biased by size. Mm -hmm. That's...
1: That's interesting to hear you say that and uh, to talk about the the different kinds of opportunities that inhabit the different uh, parts of the market. So in terms of, uh, we started out talking about how different it was back when you got started. Um, People today in financial services and a lot of industries are much more cognizant of the benefits of diversity much more aware mm-hmm. of it. Um, but we were chatting before we started recording that there still seems to be a disconnect between the awareness and yeah and the implementation. Um, do, you, do you have any thoughts on, on what might be causing that disconnect and, and how we can
0: change it? Yeah. Um, and I mentioned when we were chatting earlier that there's a wonderful organization, headquartered in New York, called Catalyst that uh, tends uh, to focus on uh, career uh cycles, not just compensation, but uh, uh, availability, career paths for women in various professions. And Catalyst has written a great deal about, and I've lived, uh, you know, the fact that in the 80s, we really did break down a lot of barriers. We pushed to have women hired into training programs in the big the big sell-side firms, for example, the idea that You know, women weren't getting a chance at the gold ring at at Goldman uh, because the selection criteria were so focused on um, high high energy, aggressive men who would be traders or salespeople. Women weren't suited to those tasks was the bias and therefore that's why uh, the training program is uh, 75% uh, men or 80% men. So we changed that a lot. And the big investment banks brought in a lot of women. Women did well, no big surprise, but they did well until they were in their mid thirties. So they'd kind of do well for 10 years and be right there shoulder to shoulder. And then they'd disappear. And some of it was disappearing into childbearing years and not wanting the hours, but some of it was just personal of saying, you know, I don't feel like going in and killing my colleagues every day. You know, I'm really tired of that. I've killed a few of them, I've gotten up to the next step, and I don't know, it's not that I miss them, but it's just not really satisfying. And they went off to smaller organizations. to to, to more flexible time schedules, but the big firms had to ask themselves, maybe it isn't enough to just open the door and let women in. Maybe we have to acknowledge that women have different goals, different processes, and that's part of the benefit. It's not just that we were missing out on half of the raw material Mm. for investment banking, we were actually missing out on some different ways of thinking. So I think in that way, The diversity movement has moved forward a lot in the last 20 years. The diversity movement has not moved forward a lot in terms of outcomes though. Women are still phasing in and out of the workplace, Uh, we're losing women in their 40s and 50s, uh, they are in unstructured entrepreneurial environments. They're they're not part of the armies that have to be part some part of of the financial services industry. So there, I I'd have to say we're still we're still working on it. The diversity movement is alive and well. There's consciousness to some to some extent. It's been I'm not sure I want to choose the right verb here, whether it's been diverted or diluted. It's a much broader philosophical conversation that global politics, having become um, fragmented and polarized around a lot of what is known as identity politics, If you're out there fighting for parity, for fill in the blank um, of all kinds of specialties of how people define themselves by tribe, it's somewhat diverted some energy from the, we'll call it the pure, how can we make the workplace attractive for people who have different skills, who are willing to work in large organizations by contributing their specific skill. How do we get away from the cookie cutter? That's very hard in a political world where people at this point in time have various motives to want to be cookie cuttered, whether it's, I want to be a pro-family conservative person or I want to be a progressive no borders person. There's a lot of self-definition that isn't part of being cohesive mm. and diverse.
1: It's so uh, it's almost like they're trying to engineer outcomes, and it's very hard to yeah. engineer some of these outcomes. Okay. So. Well, thank you very much for your time, Denise. It's been a pleasure to uh, reflect with you uh, about your career and what's changed, and the opportunities that you're still seeing in the market. And uh, I'm sure, like most investors, you never really retire. <laughs> maybe come in a little bit less often in the office, but uh, I don't think investors ever really retire.
0: Yes, well, it's a very bittersweet feeling. I'm going to miss it immensely. Uh, and on the other hand, there are a lot of unknowns out there. And at some point, you get to an age and a point of life where opportunity cost weighs more heavily, even if you can't define the opportunity. So. I think that's where I am, but thank you for the chance to talk about my past. Sure. Well, I, actually I, I'm I appreciate
1: your interest. Well we're we're all I'm sure we're all going to enjoy listening to it as well. Thank you very much, Denise.
0: Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the i3 Insights podcast. For more information,
1: please visit our website at wwwi 3
0: investcom Thank you.